pretty white cell phone with kitty cats on the back of it, back in the sound booth. So if that's yours, you might want to pick that up. Ben or Ron, maybe it's Ron. Some of you know that I um, worked for several years uh, for Walmart distribution uh, in their warehouses and distribution centers. I worked in several of them across uh, in the eastern part of the United States. And early on in my career, I worked for a department uh, that was known at the time as loss prevention. And uh, part of our job in the warehouse was to run the truck gate um, to uh, check in all of the, the semis that went in and out of the facility, and there were many. And so we got to know, some of you have heard this story before too, I see some folks grinning at me already, um, got to know some of the truck drivers and, and kind of decided, you know, I decided that on, on my shift and when I was there that, that we would make the, the, the place kind of light and, and uh, fun and that we would joke around uh, because being a truck driver is hard work, it's a hard way to earn a living and, and so uh, we wanted to kind of lighten their load, so to speak, as they came into our facility. So I was always cracking jokes or... We always had the radio on, and we would get in trouble for that. But um, one day, this uh, truck pulled in the inbound lane. I was at the window for the inbound lane. They had to get out and come in, but we had a window. And I looked, and I saw this truck driver, and I saw that he had his dog with him. Now, that was not unusual. A lot of long-haul drivers that are on the road a lot will take their, their pets with them. Uh, usually dogs, truck drivers are good upstanding Americans and hate cats like all good Christians do. And so, um, <clears throat> but I, I saw the truck driver and I saw his dog. And as he's coming in, I just thought I got the perfect line when he comes in. And so when he, when he walked in, I said, brother, that's the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my life. And he, if looks could kill, I'd have been graveyard dead. And I looked back outside, and the second time I looked at the truck was when I saw the woman in the passenger seat. <laughs> there are moments in life when we don't know what to say. When we're stuck for how to respond. <laughs> and this happens all the time when it comes to prayer. Because people aren't sure if there's a, if there's a right way to pray or there are right words to say when you pray. That's why sometimes printed prayers, prepared prayers are, are popular because uh, there are moments in life when we want to pray but we don't know how, we don't know what to say. or There are people that we want to, to pray for but we don't know how to pray for them. I mean, have you ever known two people who kind of liked each other and you prayed that they would get together? That is a scary prayer. Because, you know, what if they date for three or four months and then there's this big, ugly, messy breakup? Or what if they get married and a year or two down the line there's this nasty divorce? I mean, you feel like it's your fault because you prayed for them to get together. Now, it's not your fault, thankfully, because God is sovereign and He has veto power over our prayers, but... But still, I think one of the reasons we don't pray is because we don't know, we don't fully understand the power that's found in prayer and in calling on God, in, in asking Him to act. 
and to move. But let me tell you who some of the best people I know at praying from the heart are. You know who they are? Little kids. Little kids will just pray about anything. They just talk to God so comfortably. It's like they've you know, been best buds forever. And they'll pray, about, they'll pray about anything. They'll pray about their toys. They'll pray, they'll pray for their pets. They'll pray for uh, their favorite team. Oh, which, oh, by the way, God, please help the evil New England Patriots to be defeated today by your favorite football player, Peyton Manning. <laughs> In Jesus' name. Um, forgot that earlier today. They'll pray, little kids will pray for every single person in their family. And I mean every single person. Even some people you didn't know you were related to, your kids will pray for them. <laughs> Somebody sent me a list of some things kids had prayed for. These are things that kids have asked God. Questions, uh, prayers that kids have prayed. Dear God, I don't think anybody could be a better God. And I just want you to know that I'm not just saying that because you are God already. Dear God, please send me a puppy. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. God, who should I pray to when you go on vacation? Dear God, when, when mom makes leftovers, do I have to pray for the food again? <laughs> Here's my kind of kid right here. Dear God, every night I pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us some email. But I never get any email from you. Do you have my right address? Dear God, if you can't make me a better boy, then don't worry about it. I'm having a good time just like I am. <laughs> Dear God, is Pastor Dan a friend of yours or do you just know him through the business? Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they each had their own rooms. It works out okay with my brother and me. Dear God, do, do you draw the lines around the countries? If you don't, who does? Dear God, my grandpa says you were around when he was a little boy. Just how far back do you go? <laughs> Dear God, I want to be just like my daddy when I grow up, but without so much hair all over. <laughs> Dear God, it must be super hard to love all the people in the world, especially my brother. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> One more. Dear God, I went to this wedding, and they were kissing right there in church. Is that okay? <laughs> Last week, we began a series of messages that we're calling Faith Steps, messages for the new year. And we're starting out 2014 looking at what it means to have a, a living, vibrant, real faith. A faith that, that flows out of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A faith that makes an impact in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And let me tell you why this is important. It's important for two reasons. One, most of us should really want the best possible relationship with God that we can have. We want a relationship that's strong. We want a relationship that's vital, a relationship that's growing. But there's a second reason, and that may be more important. All around us, we have friends and neighbors and family members and children and coworkers and acquaintances 
who really, listen, who really do want to believe the Bible. They really do want to believe the gospel. They want to believe in Jesus, but listen, they're watching to see if there are any Christians who really believe the message of Jesus and who really embrace the gospel. They're looking for people who really walk by the faith they claim to embrace. Real faith. Faith's depths. It's all about walking the talk. Today I want us to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. Right in the middle of your New Testament, or pretty close to the middle of your New Testament, is a series of letters that Paul wrote to various churches, and Philippians is, is tucked in there. We referred to it last week when we said that he, uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians from jail. It's important to keep in mind as we read some of the things that he says to them. Uh, and that also he spent time in the jail in Philippi. So he was pretty well acquainted with these people, or at least with their um, incarceration facilities, let's say. And uh, we want to look at some verses in the first chapter where he shares a prayer for them. He takes, Paul does this quite frequently in his writings, especially when he writes to the churches. He'll take a moment aside, usually near the beginning, and he will pray for the church that he's writing to. And he prays. Uh, for the Philippians. And I'm going to tell you, he prays three specific things for them, and he prays three prayers that God always answers. So, if we want to know how to pray for people, I'm going to show you a pretty good list. If we want to know what we should be praying for our kids, we're going to look at some of the best things we can pray for them. And if we want to know how to tell other people to pray for us, this is the list. If we want to know what God is up to in our lives most of the time, then it's a pretty good list to look at these three prayers that are found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We're just going to take these verses as we come to them. And we'll start with prayer number one. This is the first prayer that Paul prays for them. And the first prayer I think that God always answers and a prayer that we ought to be praying for for ourselves. Prayer number one, pray that your love would be wise. Pray that your love would be wise. Philippians 1 and verse 9 says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. The best kind of love is love that's wise. Love that's, that's rooted in knowledge and understanding. How many parents do we have in the house today? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Pray for these people. Okay. How about this? Parents of teenagers. Raise your hand if you're the parent of a teenager. Pray and fast for these people. <laughs> Am I right? We've got three teenagers at the moment. So it seems like we've always had two or three for the last ten years or so. And every parent of teens understands this. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for our child is to make a decision that they will not like. To make a decision that frustrates them or makes them angry or makes them wish that almost anybody else in the world was their parent at that moment 
instead of you. Sometimes the best thing we can do for our teen is to say, no, you can't go there. You can't do that. You can't have that. (laughs) I follow a guy on Twitter, not Kenny Rogers. He said trying to be your teenager's best friend is the first step in being the first person they call from jail. You see, parents, we've got an advantage. We're older. Theoretically, we should be more experienced. And it's a little bit more of a stretch, but theoretically, we should also be wiser. We should have more wisdom and understanding. And we can see that sometimes when we have to make a hard decision, a decision we know our teenager won't like, that it's the best possible, most loving thing we could do, regardless of how they respond in the moment. That's the kind of love Paul's talking about here. Paul's not talking about sentimental, emotional uh, response. He's talking about agape love. And remember, agape love is is an act of the will. It's a choice that we make. We think that love is a feeling we feel when we feel a feeling we've never felt before. But Paul's talking about mature love. He's talking about wise love. Listen, in the absence of wisdom, love does not know how to respond appropriately. You hear me? In the absence of wisdom, love doesn't know how to respond appropriately. It's like the the older lady. She was new to social media. And she didn't know that LOL meant laugh out loud. She thought it meant lots of love. And she was not corrected until her elderly mother-in-law passed away. And she sent a Facebook message to all her relatives that said, Sorry to tell you that Grandma has passed. LOL. Proverbs 19, verse 8 says, To acquire wisdom is to love oneself. People who cherish understanding will prosper. I read a blog this week. A pastor named Tim was writing about his son. His son's a grown man now. but When he was 12 years old, the boy wanted some kind of a video game system. And he had saved a little bit of money, not much, but he he needed $100 from uh, from his dad. So he asked him for a loan. A $100 loan so he could buy the game system. So Tim, Pastor Tim said he gave his son the money with the understanding, the stipulation, you will pay this money back. And almost a year went by. And not only had Pastor Tim's son not repaid him, he hadn't even mentioned the debt. So Tim says, one day I got home from the church to find my son playing one of two new games he had just bought on our game system. And that did it. Tim goes on to tell how he took the game system, sold it at a garage sale, and got his $100 back. Now somebody out there says, that's awful. How harsh. How unfair. But Pastor Tim says, I gave my son a class that day, a class called Introduction to Foreclosure. (laughs) It's a lesson that has served him his entire life. 
Today he is in his 30s, married, has two kids, and no debt. You see, Pastor Tim was loving and wise enough to teach his son a biblical principle. It's found in Psalm 37, 21. It says, the wicked borrow and never repay. Well, guess what? God parents us that same way. He's teaching us the life lessons that we need to become the people he is calling us to be. He's teaching us what it means to follow Jesus. And that it's not a wrinkle-free life. And it's not a trouble-free life. And it's not a sickness-free life. But it leads us to Him. It leads us straight to Him. And that all begins with loving us with a love that is wise. And so He calls us to love others with a love that is wise. Prayer number two. Pray that your decisions would be excellent. That's found in Philippians 1 and verse 10, where Paul says, For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Now, now Paul's not just talking about knowing right from wrong here. In fact, he uses a word in the original language, um, translated understand, and it was a word used to describe people whose job was testing coins for the government to make sure they were authentic. They had counterfeiters in that day too, and there was a lot of money to be made in counterfeiting, but the government lost money when people uh, counterfeited coins, and so there were people who had the job of testing the coins to make sure they were real and genuine. Here's what Paul is praying for us. He's praying that we would understand value. That we would value the things that really matter. The things that are really important. That we would be able to test things. That we would be able to consider things and tell the difference between two things. That we would know what really matters. And what's really important. It's one of the biggest challenges we face. One of the biggest steps forward in maturity we will ever make is when we begin to be able to discern between two options and pick the one that lines up with God's will. But what do you do? What do you do when there are two options and they're both okay? Or they're both pretty good? I mean, sometimes it's easy, right? I mean, it's like if your two choices are join the Peace Corps or join the Mafia, okay? It's simple. If your two choices are, you know, cheer for Alabama or cheer for, well, any other school that's out there, it's clear. But not always. So what do we do when the choices are harder because there is no wrong choice? There's simply a, a choice between, you know, two good things, two relatively equal things. Well, let me give you a good place to start. It's a passage of Scripture. If you've been around church very much, you've heard it before. It's found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Now, somebody says, Pastor, how do I seek his will in all I do? You already know how to do that. You just don't know that you know. But I'm going to help you know 
that you know how to do that. And here it is. When you were a kid, did you ever have friends who asked you to do something or go somewhere and you just said no without asking your parents because you knew what your parents were going to say? Right? There's no point in asking them. They're going to say no. There's no need to ask them. I already know what they're going to say. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, no, I won't be going there. I can't do this. I can't be involved in that. Of course you have. Well, listen. The best way to learn how God will work in the present is to look at how he worked in the past. Right? And where does that come from? That comes from reading and studying and knowing what's right here. That's where it comes from. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is also Paul writing. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Let him transform you by changing the way you think. Then you will learn uh, to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God change your life by changing how you think. Folks, we, listen, we always do what we believe, not what we say we believe. God changes us by changing the way we think. Your translation may say, be changed by the renewing of your mind, by your mind being renewed, made new again. In my time as a pastor, I've had some interesting situations. I've had people ask me questions um, that I didn't know how to answer. But then I've also had those folks like the guy who strolled in my office and said, I think I'm going to leave my wife and hook up with my secretary. I think that'll make me happy and God wants me to be happy. Do you think I should do that? Oh, you shouldn't have asked me that. <laughs> no. I've not, in my lifetime, I've called very few adults stupid and gotten away with it. We know we know. We know when something's right or wrong. By the time you get to your age, whatever your age is, you know when something is right or wrong. What Paul is saying to us here is that when we submit ourselves to God, that, that when we get in line with what we already know God wants us to do, then guess what? His will becomes real clear. That's the way it works. When we line up our life and the way that we live with God's word, then his will about these two things or uh, about the choices that we need to make in life suddenly becomes much more clear. Do what God has already said in the areas of life where you know what he said and it will become much easier to hear God's answer about what you need an answer for. We are quiet today. It's the first service people throwing us off, isn't it? We should have made them go the sit in the foyer and just listen. <laughs> but 
Line, align yourself with the Word of God. Align your life with the Word of God and watch your decisions, your choices become easier to make in line with the will of God. Okay, You don't believe that, but you wish it was true. Prayer number three. Pray that your life would be fruitful. Pray that your life would be fruitful. Here's verse 11, Philippians 1 verse 11. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. That's the explanation of what fruit of your salvation means. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Let me read that again. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. The Bible frequently uses the, uh, the imagery of trees and fruit to describe our lives. But not just our lives, not just the lives of Christians or believers, because when, when Jesus is talking about false prophets, when he's talking about evil men who would try to distort or distract or confuse, he said, by their fruit, you will what? Know them. So this imagery is all over the Bible. In other words, we can identify, just like we can identify a tree by its fruit, we can identify people by their actions. I grew up in Alabama in the 1960s and 70s. And so when I hear or say or read the word governor, one name comes to mind, George Wallace. Uh, he served four terms as governor in the 1960s and 70s uh, in Alabama. He served more than anybody else in our state's history, and he served the third longest number of days in office as a governor in the whole United States. And what most people remember about Governor Wallace, and some of this I blame on YouTube, because you can go on YouTube and you can see his inauguration speech from 1963 where he says, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And you can get on there and you can see the video of him standing in the, in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama when the first African-American was enrolled later on that, that same year. And so what most people remember about Governor Wallace is that he was a racist. He was a, a segregationist. But what people don't know is that in the 70s, he was born again. He became a Christian and he renounced and apologized for his previous views. He went into a black church in downtown Montgomery and said, I was wrong. Times have changed and need to change because my views were wrong. Some of you may know that in 1972, May of 1972, there was an attempt on his life. He was shot, paralyzed for the rest of his life by a man named Arthur Brimmer. Well, in the in the late 1980s, just a few years before his death, Governor Wallace wrote to Arthur Brimmer and said, I've become a Christian, and I want you to know something. God has given me the ability to forgive you and to say, I wish for you that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. In his last run for office, he received 90% of the African-American vote in the state. And he was also the first governor to appoint African-Americans to the cabinet. And at the time of his death, no less of a person 
than Jesse Jackson had this to say about George Wallace. The man should be judged by his deeds. You can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. That's what Paul is praying for here. Okay? He's praying for the fruit of visible Christian character in our lives. A fruitful life. One that is distinctly Christian in every aspect. You know what I thought about when I was preparing this message? I thought about that question that they used to ask us back in our youth group days. That if you were arrested and put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If we're living fruitful lives, we can always answer yes. Yes, there would. But don't miss this now. Don't leave here saying I said something I didn't say. The fruit is produced by Jesus. Right? The fruit is produced by Jesus. You remember several months ago we talked about the fact that the fruit of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit's fruit. That's not my fruit. I mean, I'm not out here going, (laughs) that's not how it works. No, what we do is we put down deep roots in him and we let him live in us and through us. And the result is that he produces the fruit of our salvation. He produces it. And that, Paul says, is when our lives bring praise and glory to God. When Christ has produced the fruit of our salvation in our lives. That lifts up the name of God in the world. So when people see us, Do they think about God? Are are our lives a good advertisement for Jesus? You ever heard Ruth Graham's definition of a saint? She said a saint is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in Jesus. I pray that that's my life and your life. When this prayer is answered in us, we'll be saints who make it easy for others to believe in Jesus. And think about that. Think about that, that bearing fruit is not all about us. That that when we're really bearing fruit, we bless everyone around us. You know what it is? It's ripe tomato season in Carroll County. Right? You you go to the the garden show or you go to the co-op or you 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 go to a nursery somewhere and you buy a few tomato plants and you plant them in your yard somewhere and you you fertilize them a little bit, take care of them, and before you know it, you've got, what, more tomatoes than you can eat. And so what do you do? You start giving them to other people. But what, what you find out is that everybody has more tomatoes than they can eat and everybody's trying to give them away to each other. So we start doing um, sneaky things like taking a bag full of tomatoes and putting them in someone's car in the church parking lot and not saying anything to anybody. (laughs) Folks, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a life where we're bearing fruit to such a degree that we're blessing other people. We're blessing people we don't even know. That's God's prayer for us, that we would be so fruitful in our lives that not only would our needs be met, but our life would be a blessing to other people, that we would live a life that lifts other people up in a world where the tendency is to put people down. 
That, that we would encourage people in a, in a world where sarcasm is the national language. In a fruitful life, we use our words wisely. I mean, let's face it, anybody can tear down. That's easy. But not everybody can build up. It takes Jesus in us and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us to help us build others up. In a fruitful life, we hold our stuff in an open hand, ready to give it away in an instant. I mean, here's a thought that might blow somebody's mind. What if God has given you what you have, not just for you, but for you to give to somebody else? For you to live life saying, hey, you know what? If I've got something you need, no matter what it is, all you have to do is ask. And it's yours. You know what we just might find? We might find that in the process of blessing others, that we get blessed ourselves. As we finish up today, I want to show you one more verse. It's found in Nehemiah. It's a good Old Testament book. Not many of us have read, but there's a great verse in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says, Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Remember, we used to sing that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Anybody else sing that besides me? I mean, not just now. I know I was going to be by myself now. Solo. Listen, today, if you feel powerless and imprisoned by your circumstances, can I encourage you to embrace God's joy? Because with it, we can withstand whatever gets thrown at us. And we don't have to live defeated lives. And we don't have to be sad all the time. And we don't have to let external problems steal God's joy from our lives. We can learn... God's plan for us involves challenges at times, sure, but he never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a lesson. He uses them all to bring greater joy and greater victory to our lives. Too often we, we get into blame mode. We play the blame game. We, we look at our current situation and we open up the book of blame and we say, well, it's my mama's fault. She was too strict. It was my dad's fault. He never paid enough attention. My ex-husband's a bum. That's why my life's messed up. My boss puts too much pressure on me. That's why I can't change. I, and my kids, they're crazy. That's why I can't do anything right. We look for somebody else to blame. Well, listen to me. Right now, today, stop giving other people all that power in your life. Stop giving that to other people. Stop letting other people dictate what happens in your life. Stop letting other people direct where you go and what you do. Today, you can decide to live in such a way that God will bless your life. You can choose to have joy. You can decide today to give your life to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of all of your sins and walk with you and direct your steps today, today can be the day when you are planted by the river of God's blessing. There's nobody else to blame. There's no better time than right now to decide to take your next faith step. The next step 
in your relationship with God. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.